Part One of Fifty One Tales by Lord Dunsany. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Fifty One Tales by Lord Dunsany. Part One The Assignation. Fame singing in the highways and trifling as she sang with sordid adventurers passed the poet by, and still the poet made for her little chaplets of song to deck her forehead in the courts of time, and still she wore instead the worthless garlands that boisterous citizens flung to her in the ways made out of perishable things. And after a while, whenever these garlands died, the poet came to her with his chaplets of song. And still she laughed at him and wore the worthless wreaths, though they always died at evening. And one day in his bitterness the poet rebuked her and said to her, Lovely fame, even in the highways and the byways you have not forborne to laugh and shout and jest with worthless men. And I have toiled for you and dreamed of you, and you mock me and pass me by. And fame turned her back on him and walked away, but... In departing, she looked over her shoulder and smiled at him, as she had not smiled before, and, almost speaking in a whisper, said, I will meet you in the graveyard at the back of the workhouse in a hundred years. Karen. Karen leaned forward and rode. All things were one with his weariness. It was not with him a matter of years or of centuries, but of wide floods of time, and an old heaviness and a pain in the arms that had become for him part of the scheme that the gods had made, and was of a peace with eternity. If the gods had even sent him a contrary wind, it would have divided all time in his memory into two equal slabs. So grey were all things always where he was, that if any radiance lingered a moment among the dead on the face of such a queen, perhaps, as Cleopatra, his eyes could not have perceived it. It was strange that the dead nowadays were coming in such numbers. They were coming in thousands where they used to come in fifties. It was neither Karen's duty nor his want to ponder in his grey soul why these things might be. Karen leaned forward and rode. Then no one came for a while. It was not usual for the gods to send no one down from earth for such a space. But the gods knew best. Then one man came alone, and the little shade sat shivering on a lonely bench, and the great boat pushed off. Only one passenger, and the gods knew best. And great and weary, Karen rode on and on beside the little silent, shivering ghost. And the sound of the river was like a mighty sigh that grief in the beginning had sighed among her sisters, and that could not die like the echoes of human sorrow failing on earthly hills, though it was as old as time and the pain in Karen's arms. Then the boat from the slow grey river loomed up to the coast of Dis, and the little silent shade, still shivering, stepped ashore and Karen turned the boat to go wearily back to the world. Then the little shadow spoke that had been a man. I am the last, he said. 
No one had ever made Karen smile before. No one before had ever made him weep. The Death of Pan When the travellers from London entered Arcady, they lamented one to another the death of Pan, and anon they saw him, lying stiff and still. Horned Pan was still, and the dew was on his fur. He had not the look of a live animal. And then they said, It is true that Pan is dead. And standing melancholy by that huge prone body, they looked for long at memorable Pan. And evening came, and a small star appeared. And presently, from a hamlet of some Arcadian valley, with a sound of idle song, Arcadian maidens came. And when they saw there, suddenly in the twilight, that old recumbent god, they stopped in their running and whispered among themselves. How silly he looks, they said, and thereat they laughed a little. And at the sound of their laughter, Pan leaped up, and the gravel flew from his hooves. And for as long as the travellers stood and listened, the crags and the hilltops of Arcady rang with the sounds of pursuit. The Sphinx at Giza I saw the other day the Sphinx's painted face. She had painted her face in order to ogle time, and she has spared no other painted face in all the world but hers. Delilah was younger than she, and Delilah is dust. Time hath loved nothing but this worthless painted face. I do not care that she is ugly, nor that she has painted her face, so that she only lure his secret from time. Time dallies like a fool at her feet when he should be smiting cities. Time never wearies of her silly smile. There are temples all about her that he has forgotten to spoil. I saw an old man go by, and time never touched him. Time that has carried away the seven gates of Thebes. She has tried to bind him with ropes of eternal sand. She had hoped to oppress him with the pyramids. He lies there in the sand with his foolish hair all spread about her paws. If she ever finds his secret, we will put out his eyes, so that he shall find no more our beautiful things. There are lovely gates in Florence that I fear he will carry away. We have tried to bind him with song and with old customs, but they only held him for a little while, and he has always smitten us and mocked us. When he is blind, he shall dance to us and make sport. Great, clumsy time shall stumble and dance, who like to kill little children and can hurt even the daisies no longer. Then shall our children laugh at him who slew Babylon's winged bulls, and smote great numbers of the gods and fairies, when he is shorn of his hours and his years. We will shut him up in the pyramid of Cheops, in the great chamber where the sarcophagus is. Thence we will lead him out when we give our feasts. He shall ripen our corn for us, and do menial work. We will kiss thy painted face, O Sphinx, if thou wilt betray to us time. And yet I fear that in his ultimate anguish he may take hold blindly of the world and the moon and slowly pull down upon him the house of man. The Hen 
All along the farmyard gables the swallows sat a row, twittering uneasily to one another, telling of many things, but thinking only of summer and the south, for autumn was afoot and the north wind waiting. And suddenly one day they were all quite gone, and everyone spoke of the swallows in the south. I think I shall go south myself next year, said a hen. And the year wore on, and the swallows came again, and the year wore on, and they sat again on the gables, and all the poultry discussed the departure of the hen. And very early one morning, the wind being from the north, the swallows all soared suddenly and felt the wind in their wings, and a strength came upon them, and a strange old knowledge, and a more than human faith. And flying high, they left the smoke of our cities and small remembered eaves, and saw at last the huge and homeless sea, and steering by grey sea currents went southward with the wind. And going south they went by glittering fog banks, and saw old islands lifting their heads above them. They saw the slow quests of the wandering ships, and divers seeking pearls, and lands at war, till there came in view the mountains that they sought, and the sight of the peaks they knew. And they descended into an austral valley, and saw summer sometimes sleeping and sometimes singing song. I think the wind is about right, said the hen, and she spread her wings and ran out of the poultry yard, and she ran fluttering out onto the road and some way down until she came to a garden. At evening she came back panting. And in the poultry yard she told the poultry how she had gone south, as far as the high road, and saw the great world's traffic going by, and came to lands where the potato grew, and saw the stubble upon which men live, and at the end of the road had found a garden. And there were roses in it, beautiful roses, and the gardener himself was there with his braces on. How extremely interesting, the poultry said. And what a really beautiful description! And the winter wore away, and the bitter months went by, and the spring of the year appeared, and the swallows came again. We have been to the south, they said, and the valleys beyond the sea. But the poultry would not agree that there was a sea in the south. You should hear our hen, they said. Wind and Fog Way for us, said the north wind, as he came down the sea on an errand of old winter, and he saw before him the grey, silent fog that lay along the tides. Way for us, said the north wind, O ineffectual fog, for I am winter's leader in his age-old war with the ships. I overwhelm them suddenly in my strength, or drive upon them the huge seafaring bergs. I cross an ocean while you move a mile. There is mourning in inland places when I have met the ships. I drive them upon the rocks and feed the sea. Wherever I appear, they bow to our lord the winter. And to his arrogant boasting, nothing said the fog. Only he rose up slowly and trailed away from the sea, and, crawling up long valleys, took refuge among the hills. And night came down, and everything was still, and the fog began to mumble in the stillness, and I heard him telling infamously to himself the tale of his horrible spoils. 
a hundred and fifteen galleons of old Spain, a certain argosy that went from Tyre, eight fisher fleets and ninety ships of the line, twelve warships under sail with the carronades, three hundred and eighty-seven river craft, forty-two merchantmen that carried spice, Four quinquereams, ten triremes, thirty yachts, twenty-one battleships of the modern time, nine thousand admirals. He mumbled and chuckled on, till I suddenly rose and fled from his fearful contamination. The Raft Builders All we who write put me in mind of sailors hastily making rafts upon doomed ships. When we break up under the heavy years and go down into eternity with all that is ours, our thoughts, like small lost rafts, float on a while upon oblivion sea. They will not carry much over those tides, our names, and a phrase or two, and little else. They that write as a trade to please the whim of the day, they are like sailors that work at the rafts only to warm their hands and to distract their thoughts from their certain doom. Their rafts go all to pieces before the ship breaks up. See now, oblivion shimmering all around us, its very tranquillity deadlier than tempest. How little all our keels have troubled it. Time, in its deeps, swims like a monstrous whale, and, like a whale, feeds on the littlest things, small tunes and little unskilled songs of the olden golden evenings and anon turneth whale-like to overthrow whole ships see now the wreckage of babylon floating idly and something there that once was nineveh already their kings and queens are in the deeps among the weedy masses of old centuries that hide the sodden hulk of sunken tyre and make a darkness round Persepolis. For the rest, I dimly see the forms of foundered ships on a sea-floor strewn with crowns. Our ships were all unseaworthy from the first. There goes the raft that Homer made for Helen. The Workman I saw a workman fall with his scaffolding right from the summit of some vast hotel. And as he came down I saw him holding a knife and trying to cut his name on the scaffolding. He had time to try and do this, for he must have had nearly three hundred feet to fall. And I could think of nothing but his folly in doing this futile thing, for not only would the man be unrecognizably dead in three seconds, but the very pole on which he tried to scratch whatever of his name he had time for was certain to be burnt in the few weeks for firewood. Then I went home, for I had work to do, and all that evening I thought of the man's folly till the thought hindered me from serious work. And late that night, while I was still at work, the ghost of the workman floated through my wall and stood before me, laughing. I heard no sound until after I spoke to it, but I could see the grey diaphanous form standing before me, shuddering with laughter. I spoke at last, and asked what it was laughing at, 
and then the ghost spoke it said i'm a laughing at you sitting and working there and why i said do you laugh at serious work why your bloomin life will go by like a wind he said and your old silly civilization will be tidied up in a few centuries then he fell to laughing again and this time audibly and laughing still faded back through the wall again and into the eternity from which he had come the guest a young man came into an ornate restaurant at eight o'clock in london he was alone but two places had been laid at the table which was reserved for him he had chosen the dinner very carefully by letter a week before a waiter asked him about the other guest you probably won't see him till the coffee comes the young man told him so he was served alone those at adjacent tables might have noticed the young man continually addressing the empty chair and carrying on a monologue with it throughout his elaborate dinner i think you knew my father he said to it over the soup i send for you this evening he continued because i want you to do me a good turn in fact i must insist on it there was nothing eccentric about the man except for this habit of addressing an empty chair certainly he was eating as good a dinner as any sane man could wish for after the burgundy had been served he became more voluble in his monologue not that he spoiled his wine by drinking excessively we have several acquaintances in common he said i met king seti a year ago in thebes i should think he has altered very little since you knew him i thought his forehead a little low for a king's cleops has left the house that he built for your reception he must have prepared for you for years and years i suppose you have seldom been entertained like that i ordered this dinner over a week ago i thought then that a lady might have come with me but as she wouldn't i've asked you she may not after all be as lovely as helen of troy but was helen very lovely not when you knew her perhaps you were lucky in cleopatra you must have known her when she was in her prime you never knew the mermaids nor the fairies nor the lovely goddesses of long ago that's where we have the best of you he was silent when the waiters came to his table but rambled merrily on as soon as they left still turned to the empty chair you know i saw you here in london only the other day you were on a motor bus going down ludgate hill it was going much too fast london is a good place but i shall be glad enough to leave it it was in london i met the lady that i was speaking about if it hadn't been for london i probably shouldn't have met her and if it hadn't been for london she probably wouldn't have had so much besides me to amuse her it cuts both ways he paused once to order coffee gazing earnestly at the waiter and putting a sovereign into his hand don't let it be chicory said he the waiter brought the coffee, and the young man dropped a tabloid of some sort into his cup. "'I don't suppose you come here very often,' he went on. "'Well, you probably want to be going. I haven't taken you much out of your way. There is plenty for you to do in London.' Then, having drunk his coffee, he fell on to the floor by a foot of the empty chair, and a doctor who was dining in the room bent over him and announced to the anxious manager the visible presence of the young man's guest.' death and odysseus 
In the Olympian courts, love laughed at death because he was unsightly, and because she couldn't help it, and because he never did anything worth doing, and because she would. And death hated being laughed at, and used to brood apart, thinking only of his wrongs and of what he could do to end this intolerable treatment. But one day death appeared in the courts with an air, and they all noticed it. "'What are you up to now?' said Love, and Death, with some solemnity, said to her, "'I am going to frighten Odysseus,' and drawing about him his grey traveller's cloak, went out through the windy door with his jowl turned earthwards. And he came soon to Ithaca and the hall that Athene knew, and opened the door and saw there famous Odysseus, with his white locks, bending close over the fire, trying to warm his hands. And the wind through the open door blew bitterly on Odysseus. And death came up behind him and suddenly shouted. And Odysseus went on warming his pale hands. Then death came close and began to mouth at him. And after a while Odysseus turned and spoke. And, well, old servant, he said, have your masters been kind to you since I made you work for me round Ilion? And Death for some while stood mute, for he thought of the laughter of love. Then, come now, said Odysseus, lend me your shoulder. And he, leaning on that bony joint, they went together through the open door. Death and the Orange Two dark young men in a foreign southern land sat at a restaurant table with one woman, and on the woman's plate was a small orange which had an evil laughter in its heart. And both of the men would be looking at the woman all the time, and they ate little, and they drank much, and the woman was smiling equally at each. Then the small orange that had the laughter in its heart rolled slowly off the plate onto the floor, and the dark young men both sought for it at once, and they met suddenly beneath the table, and soon they were speaking swift words to one another, and a horror and an impotence came over the reason of each as she sat helpless at the back of the mind, and the heart of the orange laughed, and the woman went on smiling, and death, who was sitting at another table, tete-a-tete -tete with an old man, rose and came over to listen to the quarrel. The Prayer of the Flowers It was the voice of the flowers on the west wind, the lovable, the old, the lazy west wind, blowing ceaselessly, blowing sleepily, going greasewards. The woods have gone away, they have fallen and left us, men love us no longer, we are lonely by moonlight. Great engines rush over the beautiful fields. Their ways lie hard and terrible up and down the land. The cankerous cities spread over the grass. They clatter in their lairs continually. They glitter about us, blemishing the night. The woods are gone, O Pan, the woods, the woods. And thou art far, O Pan, and far away. I was standing by night between two railway embankments on the edge of a midland city. On one of them I saw the trains go by once in every two minutes, 
and on the other the trains went by twice in every five. Quite close were the glaring factories, and the sky above them wore the fearful look that it wears in dreams of fever. The flowers were right in the stride of that advancing city, and thence I heard them sending up their cry, and then I heard, beating musically upwind, the voice of Pan, reproving them from Arcady, Be patient a little, these things are not for long. Time and the Tradesman Once time, as he prowled the world, his hair grey, not with weakness, but with dust of the ruin of cities, came to a furniture shop and entered the antique department, and there he saw a man darkening the wood of a chair with dye, and beating it with chains, and making imitation wormholes in it. And when time saw another doing his work, he stood by him a while and looked on critically, and at last he said, That is not how I work. And he turned the man's hair white, and bent his back, and put some furrows in his little cunning face, then turned and strode away, for a mighty city that was weary and sick, and too long had troubled the fields, was sore in need of him. The Little City I was in the predestined eleven-eight from Goragwood to Drogheda, when I suddenly saw the city. It was a little city in a valley, and only seemed to have a little smoke, and the sun caught the smoke and turned it golden, so that it looked like an old Italian picture where angels walk in the foreground and the rest is a blaze of gold. And beyond, as one could tell by the lie of land, although one could not see through the golden smoke, I knew that there lay the paths of the roving ships. All round there lay a patchwork of small fields all over the slopes of the hills, and the snow had come upon them tentatively. But already the birds of the waste had moved to the sheltered places, for every omen boded more to fall. Far away some little hills blazed like an aureate bulwark broken off by age and fallen from the earthward rampart of paradise. And aloof and dark the mountains stared unconcernedly seawards. And when I saw those grey and watchful mountains, sitting where they sat, while the cities of the civilizations of Araby and Asia arose like crocuses, and like crocuses fell, I wondered for how long there would be smoke in the valley, and little fields on the hills. The Unpasturable Fields Thus spake the mountains, Behold us, even us, the old ones, the grey ones, that wear the feet of time. Time on our rocks shall break his staff and stumble, and still we shall sit majestic, even as now, hearing the sound of the sea, our old coeval sister, who nurses the bones of her children and weeps for the things she has done. Far, far we stand above all things, befriending the little cities until they grow old and leave us to go among the myths. We are the most imperishable mountains. And softly the clouds foregathered from far places, and crag on crag and mountain upon mountain in the likeness of Caucasus upon Himalaya, 
came riding past the sunlight upon the backs of storms, and looked down idly from their golden heights upon the crests of the mountains. Ye pass away, said the mountains, and the clouds answered, as I dreamed or fancied, We pass away, indeed we pass away, but upon our unpasturable fields Pegasus prances. Here Pegasus gallops and browses upon song, which the larks bring to him every morning from far terrestrial fields. His hoofbeats ring upon our slopes at sunrise, as though our fields were of silver, and breathing the dawn-wind in dilated nostrils, with head tossed upwards, and with quivering wings he stands and stares from our tremendous heights, and snorts, and sees far future wonderful wars, rage in the creases and the folds of the togas that cover the knees of the gods. The Worm and the Angel As he crawled from the tombs of the fallen, a worm met with an angel, and together they looked upon the kings and kingdoms and youths and maidens and the cities of men. They saw the old men heavy in their chairs, and heard the children singing in the fields. They saw far wars and warriors, and walled towns, wisdom and wickedness, and the pomp of kings, and the people of all the lands that the sunlight knew. And the worm spake to the angel, saying, Behold my food, be dakeon parathina poluflos boiotalases murmured the angel, for they walked by the sea. And can you destroy that, too? And the worm paled in his anger to a grayness ill to behold, for for three thousand years he had tried to destroy that line, and still its melody was ringing in his head. The Songless Country the poet came unto a great country in which there were no songs, and he lamented gently for the nation that had not any little foolish songs to sing to itself at evening. And at last he said, I will make for them myself some little foolish songs, so that they may be merry in the lanes and happy by the fireside. And for some days he made for them aimless songs such as maidens sing on the hills in the older, happier countries. Then he went to some of that nation, as they sat weary with the work of the day, and said to them, I have made you some aimless songs out of the small and reasonable legends that are somewhat akin to the wind in the vales of my childhood, and you may care to sing them in your disconsolate evenings. And they said to him, if you think we have time for that kind of nonsense nowadays, you cannot know much of the progress of modern commerce. And then the poet wept, for he said, Alas, they are damned. The Latest Thing I saw an unclean feeder by the banks of the river of time. He crouched by orchards, numerous with apples, in a happy land of flowers. Colossal barns stood near, which the ancients had stored with grain, and the sun was golden on serene far hills behind the level lands. But his back was to all these things. 
he crouched and watched the river, and whatever the river chanced to send him down, the unclean feeder clutched at greedily with his arms, wading out into the water. Now there were in those days, and indeed still are, certain uncleanly cities upon the river of time, and from them fearfully nameless things came floating shapelessly by and whenever the odour of these came down the river before them, the unclean feeder plunged into the dirty water and stood far out, expectant. And if he opened his mouth, one saw these things on his lips. Indeed, from the upper reaches there came down sometimes the fallen rhododendron's petal, sometimes a rose. But they were useless to the unclean feeder, and when he saw them he growled, a poet walked beside the river's bank. His head was lifted, and his look was afar. I think he saw the sea and the hills of fate from which the river ran. I saw the unclean feeder standing voracious up to his waist in that evil-smelling river. Look, I said to the poet. The current will sweep him away, the poet said. But those cities that poison the river, I said to him, he answered, Whenever the centuries melt on the hills of fate, the river terribly floods. The Demagogue and the Demi-Monde A demagogue and a demi chanced to arrive together at the gate of paradise, and the saint looked sorrowfully at them both. Why were you a demagogue? he said to the first. Because, said the demagogue, I stood for those principles that have made us what we are, and have endeared our party to the great heart of the people. In a word, I stood unflinchingly on the plank of popular representation. And you, said the saint, to her of the demi-monde. I wanted money, said the demi-mondaine. And after some moments thought, the saint said, Well, come in, though you don't deserve to. But to the demagogue, he said, we genuinely regret that the limited space at our disposal and our unfortunate lack of interest in those questions that you have gone so far to inculcate and have so ably upheld in the past prevent us from giving you the support for which you seek. And he shut the golden door. The Giant Poppy I dreamt that I went back to the hills I knew, whence on a clear day you can see the walls of Ilion and the plains of Roncesvalles. There used to be woods along the tops of those hills with clearings in them where the moonlight fell, and there, when no one watched, the fairies danced. But there were no woods when I went back, no fairies, nor distant glimpse of Ilion or plains of Roncesvalles. Only one giant poppy waved in the wind, and as it waved it hummed, Remember not and by its oak-like stem a poet sat, dressed like a shepherd and playing an ancient tune softly upon a pipe. I asked him if the fairies had passed that way or anything olden. He said, The poppy has grown apace and is killing gods and fairies. Its fumes are suffocating the world, and its roots drain it of its beautiful strength. And I asked him why he sat on the hills I knew playing an olden tune. And he answered, Because the tune is bad for the poppy, which would otherwise grow more swiftly, and because 
if the brotherhood of which I am one were to cease to pipe on the hills, men would stray over the world and be lost, or come to terrible ends. We think we have saved Agamemnon. Then he fell to piping again that olden tune, while the wind among the poppy's sleepy petals murmured, Remember not, remember not. Roses I know a roadside where the wild rose blooms with a strange abundance. There is a beauty in the blossoms, too, of an almost exotic kind, a taint of deeper pink that shocks the Puritan flowers. Two hundred generations ago, generations I mean of roses, this was a village street. There was a floral decadence when they left their simple life, and the roses came from the wilderness to clamor round the houses of men. Of all the memories of that little village, of all the cottages that stood there, of all the men and women whose homes they were, nothing remains but a more beautiful blush on the faces of the roses. I hope that when London is clean passed away and the defeated fields come back again, like an exiled people returning after a war, they may find some beautiful thing to remind them of it all because we have loved a little that swart old city. The Man with the Golden Earrings It may be that I dreamed this. So much at least is certain, that I turned one day from the traffic of a city, and came to its docks, and saw its slimy wharves going down green and steep into the water, and saw the huge grey river slipping by, and the lost things that went with it, turning over and over, and I thought of the nations and unpitying time, and saw and marveled at the queenly ships come newly from the sea. It was then, if I mistake not, that I saw, leaning against a wall with his face to the ships, a man with golden earrings. His skin had the dark tint of the southern men. The deep black hairs of his moustache were whitened a little with salt. He wore a dark blue jacket, such as sailors wear, and the long boots of seafarers. But the look in his eyes was further afield than the ships. He seemed to be beholding the farthest things. Even when I spoke to him, he did not call home that look, but answered me dreamily with that same fixed stare, as though his thoughts were heaving on far and lonely seas. I asked him what ship he had come by for there were many there. The sailing ships were there, with their sails all furled and their masts straight and still like a wintry forest. The steamers were there, and great liners, puffing up idle smoke into the twilight. He answered he had come by none of them. I asked him what line he worked on, for he was clearly a sailor. I mentioned well-known lines, but he did not know them. Then I asked him where he worked and what he was, and he said, I work in the Sargasso Sea, and I am the last of the pirates, the last left alive. And I shook him by the hand, I do not know how many times. I said, We feared you were dead, we feared you were dead. And he answered sadly, No, no, I have sinned too deeply on the Spanish seas. I am not allowed to die.
The Dream of King Karnavutra King Karnavutra, sitting on his throne, commanding all things, said, I very clearly saw last night the queenly Vava Nirya. Though partly she was hidden by great clouds that swept continually by her, rolling over and over, yet her face was unhidden and shone, being full of moonlight. I said to her, Walk with me by the great pools in many-gardened beautiful Istrakhan, where the lilies float that give delectable dreams, or, drawing aside the curtain of hanging orchids, pass with me thence from the pools by a secret path through the else-impassable jungle that fills the only way between the mountains that shut in Istrakhan. They shut it in and look on it with joy at morning and at evening when the pools are strange with light, till in their gladness sometimes there melts the deadly snow that kills upon lonely heights the mountaineer. They have valleys among them older than the wrinkles in the moon. Come with me thence, or linger there with me, and either we shall come to romantic lands, which the men of the caravans only speak of in song, or else we shall listlessly walk in a land so lovely that even the butterflies that float about it, when they see their images flash in the sacred pools, are terrified by their beauty, and each night we shall hear the myriad nightingales all in one chorus sing the stars to death. Do this, and I will send heralds far from here with tidings of thy beauty, and they shall run and come to Sendara, and men shall know it there who herd brown sheep, and from Sendara the rumour shall spread on down either bank of the holy river of Zoth, till the people that make wattles in the plains shall hear of it and sing. But the heralds shall go northward along the hills until they come to Suma, and in that golden city they shall tell the kings that sit in their lofty alabaster house of thy strange and sudden smiles. And often, in distant markets, shall thy story be told by merchants out from Suma as they sit telling careless tales to lure men to their wares. And the heralds passing thence shall come even to Ingra, to Ingra where they dance, and there they shall tell of thee so that thy name long hence shall be sung in that joyous city. And there they shall borrow camels, and pass over the sands, and go by desert ways to distant Nirid, to tell of thee to the lonely men in the mountain monasteries. Come with me even now, for it is spring. And as I said this, she faintly yet perceptibly shook her head. And it was only then I remembered my youth was gone. And she, dead, forty years. The Storm They saw a little ship that was far at sea, and that went by the name of the Petite Espérance. And because of its uncouth rig and its lonely air and the look that it had of coming from strangers' lands, they said, It is neither a ship to greet nor desire, nor yet to succor when in the hands of the sea. And the sea rose up, as is the want of the sea, and the little ship from afar was in its hands, 
and frailer than ever seemed its feeble masts with their sails of fantastic cut and their alien flags and the sea made a great and very triumphing voice as the sea doth and then there arose a wave that was very strong even the ninth-born son of the hurricane and the tide and hid the little ship and hid the whole of the far parts of the sea thereat said those who stood on the good dry land "'Twas but a little worthless alien ship, and it is sunk at sea, "'and it is good and right that the storm have spoiled.' "'And they turned, and watched the course of the merchantmen, "'laden with silver and appeasing spice. "'Year after year they cheered them into port "'and praised their goods and their familiar sails, "'and many years went by. And at last, with decks and bulwarks covered with cloth of gold, with age-old parrots that had known the troubadours singing illustrious songs and preening their feathers of gold, with a hold full of emeralds and rubies, all silken with Indian loot, furling as it came in its wayworn alien sails, a galleon glided into port, shutting the sunlight from the merchantmen, and lo! It loomed the equal of the cliffs. Who are you, they asked, far-travelled, wonderful ship? And they said, the Petite Espérance. Oh, said the people on shore, we thought you were sunk at sea. Sunk at sea, sang the sailors, we could not be sunk at sea. We had the gods on board. A mistaken identity. Fame, as she walked at evening in a city, saw the painted face of notoriety flaunting beneath a gas lamp, and many kneeled unto her in the dirt of the road. Who are you? Fame said to her. I am Fame, said notoriety. Then Fame stole softly away so that no one knew she had gone, and notoriety presently went forth, and all her worshippers rose and followed after, and she led them, as was most meet, to her native pit. End of part one.